A person cannot be a Muslim unless they believe in Jesus. When someone is embracing Islam, we just tell him, he has to say, I bear witness that there is no God but Allah, and I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and I bear witness that Jesus is the messenger of God and his servant just like Muhammad. Jesus and Muhammad. How are they alike? How are they different? Both make profound claims about God and the destiny of humanity. Whose claims should we believe? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zukerin. Today, Dr. Zukerin contrasts the lives, claims, and historical evidence for Jesus and Muhammad. This is a two-part series. Today, we'll look at part one. And it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. All at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Well, Pat, you certainly have your work cut out for you today to contrast the lives of Jesus and Muhammad. Yes, Kevin. You know, it's going to be a great and a very important show because Muhammad and Jesus are the founders of the two largest religions in the world and therefore make them two of the most influential people in the history of the world. Now, the important thing to remember is this. Both men serve not only as the founders of their religion, but also as the ideal models whose lives are to be emulated and copied in many ways by all their followers. So we need to discover and ask ourselves, what kind of lives did they live? I mean, what kind of example did they leave behind for their followers to follow? And how is their example impacting the world today? And so it's going to be a very fascinating study on two of maybe the most influential men in the history of the world. Let's start with Muhammad then. What kind of records do we have on his life? Well, when it comes to Muhammad, records of his life, the earliest records are about a century after his life and some much later. And so there is a lot of exaggeration or legend that we need to sift through. But when I looked at the life and studied the life of Muhammad, I relied on primarily three sources. They're some of the most authoritative historical works on the life of Muhammad recognized by Muslims all over the world. Now, the first one is the Quran. It's considered the inspired text of Islam. It is considered by many to be the perfect book which came down from heaven. You know, it's the perfect copy of the book that is in heaven. The Quran, many believe, is written about a century after the life of Muhammad. The second is the Hadith, a record of the many sayings and life events of Muhammad. Now, the most recognized collection is by Ishmael Sahih Bukhari, which is written about 870 A.D., so over 200 years after the life of Muhammad. And the third is the first and most authoritative biography on the life of Muhammad, written by Ibn Ishaq, nearly 150 years after Muhammad's death. So these are the three most authoritative sources when we're looking at the life of Muhammad, which is recognized by the Muslim world. When examining the life of Christ, I relied primarily on the New Testament. The four Gospels are biographies of the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written prior to 70 AD, and we've got good historical evidence that these Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written prior to 70 AD. The historical evidence is pretty strong 
on that. And the Gospel of John was written about 95 AD. So these are first generation, and several of these are eyewitness accounts or taken from eyewitnesses written by their very close associates. And they have shown to be a very accurate historical record of the life of Christ. Uh, I don't have time to go into all the evidence for that, but uh, we've done previous shows on the historical reliability of the Gospels, and we've shown them to be very accurate uh, historical works written well within the first generation. Then we have the letters of the New Testament, which also serve as a good historical source. Most were written prior to 70 A.D., and some like 1 Corinthians, written as early as 55 A.D. So when it comes to the life of Christ, we've got some very good first century, very accurate historical works. Pat, from the outset, it looks like we really have better historical evidence for Jesus than we do for Muhammad, even though Muhammad uh, came much later after Jesus. Well, you're exactly right, Kevin. We've got numerous eyewitness sources written within the first generation. I mean, when it comes to ancient historical documents. I mean, 30 years is minuscule compared to other ancient historical works. And when it comes to Muhammad, you're talking second, third, and sometimes even fourth generation works here. And the archaeology that has been done, the historical evidence, you've got over a dozen non-Christian sources that affirm the events of the gospel. So you're right, Kevin, there's much more historical evidence when it comes to the life of Christ. Pat, let's discuss the roles that Muhammad and Jesus play in the lives of their followers. Yes, Kevin, this is really important to understand. Now, Muslims believe that Muhammad is the perfect example to follow in all aspects of life. The Quran states in chapter 33, In Muhammad, ye have indeed in the apostle of God a beautiful pattern and an excellent model of conduct. It also states in chapter 68 of the Quran that it's in Muhammad you have an excellent standard of character. And in fact, the Quran also states that obeying Muhammad's teachings is equivalent to obeying God. Chapter 4 of the Quran states, he who obeys the apostle obeys Allah. Chapter 4, you know, reflects how highly Muslims revere Muhammad. In this chapter, it explains the fate of one who, who disobeys the teaching of Muhammad. It says, if anyone contends with the apostle, even after guidance has been plainly conveyed to him and follows a path other than that becoming to men of faith, ye shall leave him in the path he has chosen and land him in hell. What an evil refuge. So disobedience to the teachings of Muhammad is equivalent to disobedience to the teachings of Allah. And Muslims are called to imitate Muhammad in all aspects of their lives, you know, even in their daily activity. Islamic scholar John Esposito writes, Muslims look to Muhammad's example for guidance in all aspects of life, how to treat friends as well as enemies, what to eat and drink, how to make love and war. His impact on Muslim life cannot be overestimated since he served as both religious and political head of Medina, prophet of God, ruler, military commander, chief judge, lawgiver. Traditions of the prophet provide guidance for personal hygiene, dress, eating, marriage, treatment of wives, diplomacy, and warfare. So in daily activities, Muslims are called to imitate the life of Christ. And I know Muslims who want to so much imitate Muhammad. They tie their turbans in the same direction Muhammad went. When they get up, their left feet hits the floor first because that's how Muhammad would rise and always 
they seek to imitate Muhammad, who serves as their perfect example. Now, in contrast, Christians are not called to copy Christ in all aspects of their lives as Muslims do. Rather, Christians are called to reflect the character, mindset, and attitude of Christ. Christ focused on the inner transformation, on the heart and mind of the individual, which would then lead to righteous living. So Christ focused on the heart and the mind. And so the Christian seeks to emulate Christ in attitude and thinking in their heart, but uh, not to copy Christ in every aspect and detail of life as Muslims do Muhammad. Now, here's a good way to sum it up, Kevin. When making decisions in their lives, Muslims would ask, what would Muhammad do? While Christians ask, what would Jesus do? So since these two serve as models of perfect conduct for their followers to imitate, it's important to learn what kind of lives they lived. Well, Pat, both Muhammad and Jesus had a beginning to their ministry or a calling to their ministry. Let's discuss first the calling of Muhammad. Yes, Kevin, you know, it's at age 40 that Muhammad believed he received his first visitation from the angel Gabriel. Now, according to the earliest biographer of Muhammad's life, Ibn Ishaq, who is a very devout Muslim. And remember, this biography is written about 150 years after the life of Muhammad. And according to Ibn Ishaq, the giving and receiving of revelation was quite violent in nature. According to uh, Muhammad's account, Gabriel came to Muhammad and ordered him to read his message. And being illiterate, Muhammad asked Gabriel, what shall I read? And it is then that Gabriel pressed Muhammad so hard that Muhammad thought he was going to die. And this was repeated three times until Muhammad read the following message from Gabriel. And the message was, Read in the name of thy Lord who created, who created man of blood coagulated. Read, thy Lord is the most beneficent, who taught by the pen, taught that which they knew not unto men. And it's after this that the angel Gabriel departed. Now, what's interesting is this. Muhammad was terrified by this incident. Bukhari, who wrote the Hadith, records that Muhammad returned home trembling and sought to hide under the blanket. He told his wife, cover me, cover me, because he first thought that he had come under demonic influence. He did not know if this was a message from God or if it was demonic, and he thought it was demonic. In fact, he was so troubled, he became suicidal. Ibn Ishaq records that uh, since Muhammad did not want anyone in his tribe to discover that he had been possessed, he resolved to go to the top of a mountain and commit suicide. However, it was his wife and her cousin Waraka, who was an Ebionite Christian, encouraged him. And it is by their encouragement that he came to believe that he had received a divine message from Allah. Pat, this is very strange. Muhammad himself thought that Perhaps he was demonically possessed or under the attack of demons. And it seems that this account has the earmarks of demonic possession from a biblical worldview. What, uh, what do you think? Is this a likely possibility? Very likely. Another devout Muslim and uh, one who has studied the life of Muhammad, his name is Haeckel. Haeckel records that when Muhammad received these visions, he would shake and convulse and become unconscious. And that, according to the New Testament, is the earmarks of demonic possession. Now, Muhammad, remember, when he received the vision, he thought that uh, he might be demonically possessed. And this is not the first time that Muhammad struggled with demonic possession or demonic influence in his life. I mean, prior to his encounter here, Ibn Ishaq records that 
during Muhammad's childhood, his foster parents, Al-Harith and Halima, as they were raising Muhammad, one day while they were behind the tents, Muhammad believed that two men, clothed in white, threw him to the ground, opened up his belly and searched through it. Now his foster father felt that Muhammad might have suffered a stroke. However, Halima, the woman who nursed him in his young days, his foster mother believed that a demon had possessed him. There's another account after his prophetic calling. Muhammad believed that he received a revelation allowing Muslims to worship the three gods of the Quraysh tribe. However, later he admitted that Satan possessed him when he uttered those verses. And we know that Solomon Rushdie uh, used these in his novel, The Satanic Verses. But apparently Muhammad believed that Allah had given the Muslims permission to worship the, the three gods of the Quraysh tribe of which he is from and later he admitted no Satan possessed me uh, when I said those things and Allah eventually forgave Muhammad but gave him a stern warning which is recorded in chapter 17 of the Quran and in fact uh, also at another time after his prophetic calling Ibn Ishaq records that Muhammad fell under the spell of a Jewish magician named Labid for about one year so demonic possession and demonic influence was something that Muhammad struggled with throughout his life. You know, Pat, when we contrast Muhammad's struggle with the apparently demonic, and then look at the lives of the prophets of the Old Testament and of Jesus, we do see some differences here. Yes, the contrast is pretty great. You know, when the prophets and the apostles received their visions, there was no doubt in their mind that they had received a message or a vision from the Lord or some kind of angelic visitation. Now they were frightened, but they weren't treated violently as Muhammad was. In fact, the angel or the what we call the theophany, the manifestation of the angel of the Lord often came, opened up with a message, do not be afraid. You know, when Mary uh, saw the angel Gabriel, Gabriel opens with answers, do not be afraid. You know, when Isaiah saw the Lord, you know, he was also told, do not be afraid. When you look at the life of Jesus, you know, he had a miraculous birth, which the Quran also affirms that Jesus was virgin born, and he understood his mission from childhood. There was no struggle with demonic influence there. And throughout his life, he was clearly able to distinguish between God's message and Satan's temptations. And during the temptation in the desert, he did not struggle with possession, but instead clearly defeated Satan's attacks with the Word of God. And throughout his ministry, Jesus didn't struggle with demonic influence. In fact, he demonstrated authority over the entire demonic realm. The demons were terrified of him. And through his death and resurrection, uh, Christ defeated Satan and the demonic host. Paul states in Colossians chapter 2 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them uh, through the cross. So the contrast is pretty clear. One man struggled with demonic presence in his life while the other conquered the devil and showed ruler and mastery over the demonic realm. Let's look then, Pat, at the early ministry of Muhammad as he first began preaching his message. What was it like? What was he saying? Well, it's interesting. Both Muhammad and Jesus were persecuted for their message. Now, Muhammad began preaching in Mecca and during his 13 years of preaching, 
in the city of Mecca, he preached a message of tolerance towards other religions as he sought to win the favor of the people. And it's at this time that there are several passages uh, in the Quran that are written teaching tolerance of others. Uh, one of the famous ones that people will quote, chapter 2 of the Quran, you know, there's no compulsion in religion. However, as the persecution grew, Muhammad fled to Medina in 622 AD, one of the most important events in Islam called the Hydra. And it's in Medina he gained a following and became the leader of a city. And it's in Medina, as his power grew, that his message transformed to one of intolerance of unbelievers. And he began to encourage the use of military force and the earlier revelations of tolerance were then abrogated, or we call overruled, by the new revelations, exhorting Muslims to jihad, or military action, against unbelievers. So to sustain his growing army and to impress the people of Mecca, of his growing power, he raided commercial caravans on their way to Mecca, and he received revelations in the Quran endorsing his raids, to attack unbelievers and seize their goods. And Bukhari, the one who collected the sayings of the Hadith, Bukhari records that on his first raid at Al-Abwa, Muhammad was asked by one of his men if it was permissible to attack the caravan at night since doing so would endanger the lives of women and children traveling with the caravans. And Muhammad replied, They, the women and children, are from them the opposition. In other words, he permitted the killing or capture of women and children during the raids and so the women and children would suffer the same fate as the men. And the booty collected from the raids was distributed among his men. And these raids then incited, of course, the Meccans to war against Muhammad. And four major battles were fought between Muhammad and the armies of Mecca. And in 624 AD, the two armies met at the Battle of Bader. And this is where Muhammad, outnumbered three to one, defeated the armies of Mecca. And this instilled confidence in Muhammad of his calling. He believed that Allah and the angels had fought to bring about his victory. A year later, the Meccan army returned and engaged Muhammad's army at Uhud. It's a mountain near Mecca. And this time Muhammad was defeated and his army retreated back to the city of Medina. And Ibn Ishaq records that Muhammad was bloodied in the battle and he vowed revenge on his enemies. Then in the spring of 627, the Jews of Medina plotted with the armies of Mecca against Muhammad. And hearing of this plot, Muhammad dug a trench around the city of Medina. So when the Meccan army came, they laid siege to the city but were unable to capture the city. And so they returned to Mecca. Now, after the Meccan army retreated, Muhammad sought to deal with the Jews of Medina who had, he believed, plotted against him. And Ibn Ishaq records that Muhammad Quote, went out to the market of Medina and dug trenches in it. Then he sent for them and struck off their heads in those trenches as they were brought to him in batches. And Ibn Ishaq records that Muhammad killed somewhere between six to seven hundred uh, Jewish men that day by cutting off their heads. Now after the siege of Medina, a peace treaty was signed between the two armies. However, the treaty was violated and in 630 AD, Muhammad gathered an army of 10,000 men and marched on the city of Mecca. Now the Meccans, seeing that their situation was hopeless, surrendered to Muhammad, and Muhammad ordered his men to enter the city and fight against 
only those who resisted, but he also had a list of those who were to be killed even if they had sought refuge in the sacred Kaaba temple. And most on the list were those he, that he considered uh, apostate. And after this, Muhammad rode his camel into Mecca, cleared out the temple, burned the idols, and declared Allah to be the only God and Islam, the religion of the land. So along with these four major conflicts were numerous other raids and battles that Muhammad engaged in to spread the religion. Uh, Ibn Ishaq records that in all, Muhammad participated in 27 battles, personally fighting in nine of them. So that's how Muhammad spread Islam throughout the land. It was through the sword. Pat, we've run out of time, but we want to look further on how Islam spread, how Muhammad spread Islam, and how Christianity and the message of Jesus, how it spread, and see if there are some contrasts there. Am I to understand that when we read the Quran, that we can distinguish between the early surahs or, or chapters or sayings of Muhammad and then the later ones? The early ones are more tolerant, and then suddenly you see some intolerance come in in the later surahs? Yeah, Kevin, you know, you're exactly right. When you read the Quran, you have to know when the Quran was written. It's basically divided into two sections. You have the pre-Medina surahs or chapters and then the post-Medina surahs. Now, when Muhammad began preaching in a reach out and win converts, he was tolerant of other religions. But after his exile to Medina and when he began to gain power, that's when he, he became much more intolerant and commanded his men to jihad against unbelievers. So you got to know when these surahs are written. And also you got to understand the law of abrogation, that where the later revelations overrule the previous ones. So the verses of tolerance are overruled by the latter revelations for jihad against the unbelievers. We know that Muhammad was a warrior, that uh, when they began in Medina, they began raiding caravans. And then they fought four major battles with the armies of Mecca, finally capturing the city of Mecca. Then Muhammad sent messengers all over Saudi Arabia, ordering them to accept Islam or suffer the consequences. And many surrendered to Muhammad, but then he also attacked other settlements throughout the Arabian Peninsula, subduing them militarily. And so Islam was spread through the sword throughout the Arabian Peninsula in the lifetime of Muhammad. And the four caliphs who followed after Muhammad also following in the footsteps of Muhammad spread Islam throughout North Africa, Asia, and eventually getting onto the shores of France uh, also through the sword. Well, let's compare that then with how Christianity spread. Contrast is quite significant. You know, in contrast to Muhammad, who presented the message of jihad, uh, for example, in chapter 9 of the Quran, where he states, Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem. Instead, Jesus preached a different message. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus praised those who make peace, teaching, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus never engaged in military conflict. Instead, Christ spread his message through preaching, teaching, and the accomplishing of miracles. And his mission 
culminated in his death on the cross for the sins of mankind and his resurrection from the dead. And Christ's disciples followed his example. Christianity was spread through the preaching of the gospel message. Uh, Christ's disciples did not die on the battlefield as warriors, but instead they were martyred for proclaiming the name of Christ. Okay, Pat, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we're going to pick it up there next time. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman, and we're doing a two-part series on Jesus and Muhammad. We're looking at some comparisons and contrast. Next time, we're going to look further on how Islam and Christianity spread. What about the Crusades, many people ask? Wasn't that an example of spreading Christianity by the sword? How did Jesus and Muhammad respond to their critics? They both had plenty of critics, lots of criticism. How did they respond? What was Muhammad's attitude and teaching on women? What was Jesus' attitude and teaching on women? These questions and many more we'll deal with next time on Evidence and Answers. And by the way, if you missed any portion of today's show, or you would just like to go over it or send it to a friend, it's available for download when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for joining us. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You'll educate yourself and your family, and you'll help us keep expanding. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.